0: there. I'm Shantris King and you're listening to Welcome to the House, a podcast from the Afro-American Cultural Center at Yale that explores stories of the past, present, and future told by the Black people who know them best. On this week's episode of Welcome to the House, we will be delving into the healing powers of Black people. Well, more specifically, the ways that Black people in the United States have and continue to contribute to health knowledge and work as practitioners dedicated to healing their community. At the moment, COVID 19 and the coronavirus have upended most of our lives. In its early stages, there are jokes and memes and lots of conversation that Black people were immune to the virus, but with Black people accounting for over 70% of deaths in urban areas where they only make up a one-third of the population, it is clear that the jokes about Black people's immunity to the coronavirus couldn't be farther from the truth. As COVID-19 disproportionately impacts Black people and Black communities across the U.S., it has left me wondering when has a similar event struck Black people and also wanting to know more about the Black people who have and currently do so much to keep us all healthy and healing. So let's get into it. To tackle the questions uh, provided and posed in this episode, I spoke with a historian and expert on the topic, Dr. Deidre Cooper Owens, who is a historian and the author of Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology.
1: Oh, all right, you can hear me?
2: Yes, mm-hmm. we're all here, okay. you, me, okay. and the app. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, fabulous.
0: Perfect. Um, question number one: Are um, what are some of the earliest instances of um, black people being health providers in the U.S. or contributing to um, health knowledge?
1: So um, you know the the records uh are a bit, I mean they're 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 fragmented, um they do exist, you know so, for instance um although I am pretty sure. There were black people in um, what becomes the United States providing probably domesticated um, care for sick people, you know, so whether they were chambermaids or, or you know, served as wet nurses or um, taking care of the sick, you know, through either indentured servitude or slavery, we don't have a kind of whole record on, of that. Um, I do know in what later becomes a, uh, known as the Dominican Republic, you had an African-born woman who had um, migrated to, immigrated, excuse me, to Hispaniola um, to, to open up um, a health care site. You know, so it, it was really just kind of a little, um, a kind of hut-type building, but she used it to to, to heal. Um, and so as you then kind of cross, um, you know, across the, the, the ocean, so to speak, you then had um, Black people, by the 1700s or the early 18th century, who had been doing a lot of the day-to-day labor in terms of um, nursing ill people back to health. What I tend to think about is uh, the 1793 yellow fever epidemic that hit Philadelphia, and during that time, Philadelphia had a disproportionately large number of um, free people of color, as they were called back then. And during this epidemic, there was a mistaken belief by men like Benjamin Rush, who's known as the father of American medicine, that Black people had an immunity somehow to yellow fever. And so he uh, goes to two leaders in the in the Black community, uh, Reverend Richard Allen, who founded the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and Absalom Jones, another um, you know leading minister who also founded a church in Philly. And he asks them to essentially Um, Galvanize Black people to assist um, those who were stricken with yellow fever. So the leaders do that. Now, this is an interesting thing. All of a sudden, here you have, and I'm using 21st century language now, these Black folks who are on the front line, essentially helping those who are sick, helping those who are shut in, um, who have been afflicted with yellow fever, you have these Black folks in the community, and they make up about Geez, maybe, um, you know, there were maybe about 2,000, a little bit over 2,000 black people in Philadelphia at 1793. They're going out in droves. Many of them are exposed to yellow fever. Many die. After the epidemic passes, you know, a white man, uh, Irish born, uh, I forget. Oh, my goodness. I have to, I forget his name. But he essentially says, oh, these black people weren't really helping the community. They were, in fact, taking advantage of sick white patients. So they were going out and plundering and looting and stealing from their patients because they knew these people would die. They were grifters. And so here is, once again, this narrative that we're very familiar with in the 21st century that ignores the fact fact that black people disproportionately were on the front lines, helping those who were afflicted by a pandemic, Um, And the accusations that somehow black people, even though they were, you know, nurses and they dug graves and they did all of these things, that black people were, in fact, exploitative. And so there was this kind of victim blaming. Now, and so he publishes this pamphlet. It goes through four printings. Absalom Jones and Richard Allen finally, you know, and I'm going to use a term I think many people in the African-American community are familiar with, they clap back. They publish a pamphlet, and they essentially, you know, dismantle this man's argument. They also, um, you know, they take on Benjamin Rush's, you know, um, erroneous claims that black people are somehow immune. You know, Richard Allen even uses himself saying, i have yellow a and thankfully made it um, live to tell the story. But there's a particular way that black people have always either been, A, seen as vectors of disease or somehow immune to disease. Um, And then they are the frontline workers because they often have to take on jobs, right, that other folks don't want, jobs that pay them um, much lower than than white folks, jobs that are, you know, that expose them to public health menaces, you know, like a yellow fever. So in the 21st century, I think some of the parallels are the victim blaming, the Surgeon General uh, at a a presidential uh, press conference essentially said, Black people people and brown people need to stop Abusing drugs and alcohol And the statistics show Even those that have been published by the government In fact, black and brown People have a Slightly um, Decreased use of uh, Illegal narcotics and alcohol Than white Americans And yet, here's the kind of victim blaming Right, where he isn't Talking about the kind of systemic racism That's found in the medical industry But in fact If black people and brown people just stop doing what all Americans do, right, which is you know using uh, alcohol and and drugs, then somehow COVID-19 won't affect us. And he's not necessarily talking about the structural um, apparatus that is in place and that has been in place for centuries, which is medical racism.
0: To use 21st century language, we get tried even in times of a pandemic that we are disproportionately impacted by and our real concerns go unaddressed. That is just what history teaches us. But to keep with the theme of today's episode, Dr. Cooper Owens offers more historical examples of black people and in particular, enslaved black women whose knowledge and expertise we can see in the realms of health and healing uh, today.
1: Black bodies were almost always involved. Black bodies and black lives almost always involved in many of these, um, you know, trailblazing and pioneering procedures, particularly with reproductive medicine, because their bodies were so easily accessed by white doctors in particular and white slave owners um, who could then offer up their, their slaves um, to be quote unquote cured or fixed, you know, and that, that simply meant medically experimented on. Mm-hmm. And so what happens though is that these women, even in those, you know, really um, low-ranking positions, you know, as as you know, assistants to these doctors, really doing the dirty work, you know, cleaning people who um, had diarrhea or dysentery, or you know, cleaning up um, bodily fluids, all of those things. These women were also bringing their own knowledge that stemmed from their community, and oftentimes doctors paid notice, and they would write about these things, and so. There was a kind of – and this is the only word that pops into mind, and I also don't want people to interpret it as if this this was some kind of shared – but there was a kind of synergistic relationship, I think, on the doctor's part, knowing that there was medical wealth and knowledge that enslaved people had. So even if their words on the printed page said something different, they would still often – rely upon the kind of knowledge that these Black women brought. Um, and I think that's really important. In my book, I, you know, share a bit about James Marion Sims, who after his death was, was uh, kind of crowned the father of American gynecology by his contemporaries as a form of tribute to him. And, you know, he only um, creates the kind of, um, you know, kind of curative surgical repair technique when those enslaved women became his his surgical assistants and nurses, not when the two white surgical assistants were were assisting him. You know, so I often joke, isn't it ironic that the very folk who were deemed as inferior because of their sex and because of their so-called race, right, and also their enslaved status, they're the ones who helped him usher in this, this pioneering surgical repair. Um, and I think that that says a lot that these untutored, illiterate, enslaved folks were the ones who James Marion Sims essentially relied upon as he was trying to create this uh, surgical repair. I think there's a particular way that Black women then, um, centuries back in the 18th and 19th centuries, you know, were able to um, really show their expert knowledge about herbs and roots. And so that kind of what today what we call homeopathic you know kind of homeopathic healing black women were really expert at knowing that now that wasn't necessarily exceptional right because it was a different world lots of people understood the curative nature of um plants right um but the ways in which enslaved women in particular and black women who had so much kind of restricted to them had to rely solely on on um plants um you know and so i think that is something that's really important so even now i have often seen and read um you know social media sometimes in news articles where black women will talk about the ways that they um have incorporated kind of aromatherapy even without using that word but they'll say you know steam is really good for these respiratory conditions and so they're 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 literally boiling citrus fruits and garlic and, you know, having eucalyptus in the showers um, and, and having it, you know, steamed um, so that the smell can be released uh, with the oils. And so that is a particular way, I think, that there's a kind of reaching back across time and space where we're relying on the, the kind of um, practices of old that we see are actually helpful. Also, I think the ways that, <clears throat> excuse me, unfortunately, Black people um, have always had to labor, <laughs> even in even in sickness, um, even through pandemics and epidemics, but the kind of physical movement um, of the body in respiratory-borne uh, conditions like today with COVID-19 also becomes important as well, right? That um, one cannot simply kind of uh, uh, just lay, right? That there has to be some physical activity that is actually good. Um, and so there are ways that I think um, you know, that is kind of a, 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 a throwback, you know, to the ways that our ancestors knew how to heal others.
0: Dr. Cooper Owens makes this great point about the use of herbs and aromatherapy among Black people today. So, to give us a glimpse on how this plays out in the lives of some Black folks, I asked Leon Tanis to talk about her own family's experience with homeopathic medicine. Here she is.
3: My mom always had this book called, I think it was called Garden of Eden or it is called Garden of Eden. Um, it's like this herb book. And so my mom was always big into herbs, using herbs as healing. Um and we lived in the kind of we lived in Texas at the time in Dallas. And we went to this store called Whole Foods, which um, when it blew up, I was like, oh, this is such a little store in Dallas. And it was the store that, like, kind of hippies or whoever kind of went to because it had all bulk products and dry products and um, herbs and things like that. And so my mother used to go there and get stuff, like, you know, for whatever. And then I recall when my mother was going through her own, like, menopause journey, she was having a tough time, um, Figuring out, or just kind of navigating the system to get the right treatment for her menopausal symptoms, and she ended up purchasing a book called um, I think Our Bodies Are Women. Can't remember the name of that book. Um, or like Our Bodies Are Wisdom, something like that. And she started. It was like all of a sudden I started seeing canisters of like sandaline root, nettle leaf, raspberry, tea leaf, clover, like red clover, like all these things. And she used to make this tea and she used to drink it every day. And it was a way to um, mitigate some of those symptoms that she was experiencing. And so I kind of grew up in this house of just self-healing. And I remember I used to have really bad allergies and I learned in class like oh, if you take allergy medicine, it just kind of suppresses the immune response, but it's still there. And so it was just kind of like, well, why take allergy medicine? Like, I was just always, like, that was my relationship to healing, like, really understanding the pathology of it, understanding what pharmaceutical medicine does, and then realizing that all pharmaceutical medicine does is mirror what's in nature. When Leon mentions
0: class in this context, what she is referring to is class at Yale School of Nursing, where she is currently a first-year specialty nursing student studying to be a midwife, a career she chose after working in finance for over a decade. Like so many Black women who have been called to midwifery, Leon is working to assist Black birthing people have the best birth and overall health outcomes possible. With that said, in her current training, she's had experiences that have helped to further solidify both the kind of midwife she wants to be and the kind she is determined not to be. Here she is again.
3: There's this one patient, it was a crazy night. I can't remember how many births we had come in that night. And this one patient came in and she was just, she's in obvious pain. And I think we sent her away because They did a cervical check and they saw she was only like two centimeters and they were like no. An hour later she comes back because she is just in excruciating pain and um, they checked her again or I'm saying they but it's the midwife checked her again and she was only three centimeters. And so um, what midwife or I shouldn't say what midwife, let me think about how I say this. There's something that they do called cervical checks, where they insert two fingers into the vagina, look for the cervix, and then kind of measure the cervix. And that's how, one of the ways that they measure the progression of labor. Um, It's, from what I've heard, it's extremely uncomfortable. And uh, this particular midwife had decided essentially to be, um, to put up a boundary between the woman receiving pain relief and, um, or how did I say this, the midwife kind of held the pain relief ransom <laughs> because every time she went in to check this woman, the woman just kind of refused. And so the midwife essentially said, I have to check you. If you don't let me check you, you can't get this pain medicine, which is absolutely wrong because the woman was just like, give me an epidural. And she wasn't English speaking. She's um a woman of color. And so um the uh the midwife, so I just recall the midwife checking her multiple times within one hour, which is not common. Um, asking the woman, is this your first child? The woman said no. She said, well, what was the first birth like? The woman said, you know, I had no pain meds, and so the midwife was just like, so I don't understand why you just can't, you know, kind of sit with this right now. She was like, oh, so you've been through this. Like, you know, it's not new, you know, which means nothing because two births are to- could be totally different. The pain can be totally different. Or maybe that first birth was so painful, she was like, I'm not doing this again, or you just don't know the circumstances of that first verse, right? It, it shouldn't matter in terms of her getting pain relief. And so the midwife said, well, you're not really far along enough. Um, you're dehydrated, so we're going to give you some water, or not water, but some IV fluids, um, and we're going to continue to check you. And the woman was just like, no, give me my epidural. And there are so many options that could have happened within that moment but the midwife was just like, no, like, I'm not, we're not doing this. And so finally the woman, you know, the woman had basically screamed enough where the midwife was like, fine, I'm going to check you again. And then, you know, if you, if you move, we'll give you one. Um, and so the woman kind of refused. She refused to open her legs. And I was there with her providing some support. And so the woman finally, not finally, but the woman opened her legs eventually, and the midwife went in to check, and at that point the woman stopped her hand, stopped the midwife's hand because, again, pain. And I, I like, I'm thinking it's a sterile field, no, you can't touch down there. I moved the woman's hand. And. After that, like within a split second, I stopped because I was like, whoa, wait a second. This woman just, she didn't consent to this cervical check. The midwife is doing it anyway and I'm helping in kind of this violation. Um, And I just remember I just stepped away from the patient. I was just like, you know what, this is between the two of them. I have no role in this except really to support that patient. and." For me to support the patient, I'm kind of going against the midwife, which is, it just creates this power dynamic that I was like, no. So I just remember in that moment, that moment stuck with me for, I mean, it's still with me. Um, And I just recall really learning about trauma, really understanding consent, really understanding my role as a provider or um a support person in that space. Um and really understanding or really seeing the power dynamic play between the midwife and the the um patient and deciding I would never I would never ever do something like that um to a patient or participate in something like that again. And that if I was in a position of power. I would definitely stop it.
0: The power of touch, which Leon brings up in her story, reminded me of something that Dr. Cooper Owens mentioned during my conversation with her. But for Dr. Cooper Owens, she remarked how touch for Black people has historically been a tool for healing. Here she is again explaining this concept further.
1: So there are all kinds of ways that I think Black women brought um, knowledge that extended past centuries, you know, from um, West Africa, Central Africa, uh, knowledge that they gathered, you know, being in, in interaction with Native folk, um, when they, you know, when the first kind of wave of uh, African people came to what became the Americas, and also the kind of pharmacological knowledge that these women had um, regarding birth control, regarding um, not, be, not using invasive methods to deliver babies um, that doctors didn't necessarily know. So the kind of, um, I think, kinship also that Black women brought is really important. And for me, my next project looks at the ways of touch. um, I call the haptic. That's the kind of sensory knowledge. But also these women literally laid hands on each other, and they knew, you know, without understanding all the scientific knowledge and the, the medical jargon, there was something about touch that becomes really important um, in the healing process. And now, you know, we know with all of the medical and scientific research, how healing touches, but there was always something that was um, physical. You know, there was always a kind of sensory moment, I think, in black women healing each other. And so in the age of novel coronavirus and COVID-19, The very thing that Black people relied upon to heal each other, which is touch, right, is absent from that, right. And so I'm wondering, once this thing passes, and like most global pandemics, it's going to pass. But what will be the afterlife of COVID-19 for a, you know, a a viral, um, a viral condition that doesn't allow folks to be touched? Um, you know, so I'm wondering what that what that's going to do to to our communities um in the after week of this.
0: I don't know what the politics of touch will be like after this is all over, but the idea of touch being a healing method used by Black people made me wonder how Black people are using touch now to heal others. This train of thought led me to Tayma Graves and Hanifa Washington, the co-owners and co-founders of One Village Healing, located in New Haven, Connecticut. On their site, they describe One Village Healing as an emergent behavior-based wellness and healing arts initiative dedicated to creating spaces, convening, programming, rooted in the values of the healing justice movement to collectively heal from the impacts of systems of oppression so we can all live wildly liberated, connected, inspired, and healthy lives. I'll let the founders introduce themselves and tell you more about their own journeys to healing and this practice. We will start with Tema Graves.
2: I am a, a holder of space of uh, for healing. And uh, some people would reference that or call that being a healer. And uh, my modalities that I use um, are uh, Reiki. So I'm a Reiki master teacher. Um, And Reiki is uh, a form of energy work uh, that has roots in Japan, but um, it's just, you know, one name for something that has been used for thousands of years in many cultures um, by different um, forms of people that uh, would call themselves healers. Um, And it's a way to bring balance and de-stress the body through touch or, or not touching. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a form of, uh, of healing that's used to um, really help to bring um, solace and balance to the, the nervous system. Um, and, and, and in that, um, a lot of things can happen. Uh, I, I always tell people many things happen on my table um, with people, um, but it, it's all in the realm of, of healing and what the person needs in that moment. So um, I'm a Reiki master teacher, and I'm also um, a a yoga instructor, yoga and meditation instructor. At the age of 20, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, and um, uh, it was a very hard and confusing time. At the time I was um, in college, I was attending Spelman College in Atlanta. I'm from New Haven, um, and so I was, you know, far away from home and started to have all these, like, really distinct um, health issues um, out of nowhere, it appeared. Um, you know, thirsty, having to, like, urinate a lot, lost, like, 20 pounds in two weeks, um, and eventually had to go to the emergency room where I was told very, um, I would say, curtly and, and rudely by a doctor that um, I got it. I got diabetes. Um, and um, then having to, like, process that as a 20-year-old um having to relearn, uh, like, what nutrition is and how, how what do I need to eat and not really feeling like I had any um, direction about how to manage this thing. It felt like a lot of trial and error um, that um, felt, uh, um, you know, just really felt like when someone pulls a rug from under your feet and you feel like you're, like, free falling and nobody's really there to help catch you. Um, And, so for years I um I struggled um not just physically but mentally um and emotionally with this um with this imbalance this physical imbalance um that I really felt alone in um and eventually um was looking for something outside of just like insulin um, to kind of help me. I was like, something, some, there has to be something else um, more to it because there was so much that the doctors couldn't tell me about the origins of this illness. Um, And so with that, I was like, well, I have to fill in the blank some kind of way because just doing this insulin and trying to eat right is not like helping me on a whole level. There's so many other things going on with me because of this. And it's affecting my life um, in a lot of different ways. Uh, so I began this like search for something more,
1: um, and I didn't
2: know what that was going to be. Um, and I uh, eventually found uh, uh, I went to a library and found a book by Deepak Chopra, The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success, and began to read it. And throughout the book, he mentioned um, meditation a whole lot. Like that was like the basis of the of the whole book. And I was like, what is this thing he's talking about? Like meditation, meditation. Like I was a little bit familiar with yoga at the time, but not really meditation for some reason. I didn't like connect the two. And uh, so he described it and I just started to, I tried to implement it into my life um, every morning. Because at that point I was desperate. I was like, I need something. What is this thing that I need? I don't know just yet. And I started to sit outside or wherever five to ten minutes a day and within that my everything everything shifted for me like the way i thought about myself and who i was in the world um it all started to come together in this whole different way and at the time i, I by that time i was working managing a, a upscale hair salon in the buckhead area of atlanta and i realized i was like this ain't it this is not this is not my calling. this is not my purpose i'm I'm here for other reasons and through meditation, I started to realize and discover um as I went within um started to be more curious about the the special gifts that I had and what I could bring to the world and um and through that path uh certain things started to come up, so it's like one um one step leads to the next. So I started first with what I noticed was that people would ask me for advice a lot. And when I gave them advice, like I would be able to tell them things that um, I would would never know, like it, it, things about people that um, I, I didn't or couldn't know because I didn't really know them that well, but it resonated with them. So there was this, like, intuitive uh, messaging that was coming through. So I was like, well, what does that mean? And, of course, you know, at the time, there's, like, the start of, like, Googling and everything. I was like, oh, you're a psychic. Start reading tarot cards. And I was like, all right, cool. Um, so I started with tarot cards. And um, then from there, um, I was like, okay, this is a thing, and I I can use this, but I really want to – um, this my work to be really rooted in healing. Um, and yes, like the way that I used my intuitive guidance through tarot was um, about healing, but not everybody saw it in that way because of the stigma and, um, you know, the, the ideas that people had around uh, tarot, the messaging around it. Uh, so what I started to discover, and also through a, a really close friend of mine who was studying Reiki and energy work um, she suggested that I try it out, um and I really at the time did not know much about it um but I did know that she would send me quote unquote send me energy um from arizona and and at that this point, I'd moved back to Connecticut, and I could feel something happening in my body as she was sending me this energy um and I found myself being really relaxed and at ease um and um, so there was that aspect of it. And I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. But then also the other aspect was I knew that they were, at the time, doing Reiki in at Yale at the hospital in the cancer ward, um, which for me as someone that is, like, spiritual but also super, like, pragmatic as well, I'm like, okay, like, it's not just about believing something, but can you feel it? And does it have effects and lasting effects? Um, so the fact that, you know, this was being recognized as something that, Um, could help people in in dire need, you know, in dire straits, in that, like it was being recognized by medical community was also something that, you know, uh, really drew me to Reiki.
0: It was interesting to hear about the power of Reiki and even how it's being recognized by larger health institutions like hospitals. But I wanted to know how Reiki had helped Tema in her own personal life with managing her diabetes. This is what she said
2: the last seven years where in these past seven years where i've been studying reiki and yoga i have not been hospitalized once when i first was diagnosed with with diabetes and those in that first i would say 10 years there would be years where i was hospitalized at least twice 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 a year you know um because of high blood sugars and and um just um, yeah, basically high blood sugars unregulated um diabetes um and so Reiki has really helped me because it it does affect your nervous system, so, as a Reiki practitioner, I give Reiki, but I also can give Reiki to myself, so that's one of the benefits of it, so in times where I'm feeling stressful or like have anxiety um i I give myself, or feeling sad or depressed, I'll give myself Reiki. And, like, recognizing the fact that, you know, stress is, like, paramount in the way that people manage, you know, these type of chronic illnesses. Like, it has, it can affect it so much. Um, It can affect the blood sugars because it also affects your mind and your actions right? So you're not, you're, you're a, a lot of times when you're in those states of, of panic or feeling sad, you're just going to this reactive way of being. So whether that be, oh, wow, I'm stressed. I don't know what to do. So I'm going to eat this cake when I know I don't need to, you know, but this is a thing. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for direct comfort and I'm going back into habits that in the past, I, you know, or when I was a child made me feel good. But with the act of using Reiki, it allows me to slow down. Reiki and, you know, things like meditation. So getting into the yoga, it allows you to, like, slow down your process and not be as reactive and really be aware of, of your choices and and, way, and how it affects your your whole being um, and, and to go beyond the, the present moment. So, yes, it brings you to the present so that you can go beyond the present. Um, and think about, okay, well, actually, this is not something that's going to help me in the long run. So what is my body? What is really what my body is asking for right now? Is it rest? Is it water? Is it, you know, a green juice? Like, what really do I need? So all of these practices have really, um, they've helped to um, create a, a, a different awareness. I always tell people that, like my work now, you know, when when you actually activate these practices, um, and they serve you in a way where it's like you're I almost feel like you're in the matrix. And if you've ever seen, um <laughs> I always use this um example of, you know, Neo in the Matrix when he's finally like discovered his power. It's like the end of the movie and he finally like steps into his power. All the things that Morpheus has told him are finally clicking and like the, the agents are like shooting bullets at him and he's like dodging them in this most like beautiful and amazing way. That's what these practices do for me. That's what, you know, yoga brings me back into my body. It, it keeps me from number one, escaping and And being like somewhere else, it brings me back into my body so that I'm fully aware of of what I need, and not just what I think I need, but actually what does my body need? What does my mind need what does what do I genuinely need or or um what is going to actually feed me and nourish me in this moment? And so-,
0: so we know how Tema has got here. Let's hear from Hanifa.
4: My name is Tanefa Naya Washington, and I am um, a singer-songwriter. I am a daughter. (laughs) I am a lover of all things strawberries, and I love cats. Um, I'm a cultural activist, meaning that I have put the use of arts and the performing arts Um, uh, as a tool for healing and awareness um, and also in community um, activation, bringing people together. Um, And I come from a long line of of healers um, and folks who are connected to wellness and well-being. Um, I grew up in Detroit and lived in Texas when I was a teenager and um moved to Connecticut uh back in the early two thousands, around two thousand and four. And I currently live in Westville in in New Haven and I um really believe in the power of collective healing. I really am inspired and led by the values of the healing justice movement. Um and Believe that I'm here to help support anchoring more love um, here on Earth. One of my really favorite memories of my grandmother um, is her coming home really early one morning, and she would actually wake me up, um, and uh, because she enjoyed it when I would put my hands like on her like on her knees and her and her feet, and it was like kind of like our time to connect and. She told me, she was like, honey, fellow, I need you to remember that you have very powerful healing hands and, and know that that's a special gift that you have. Um, and, you know, and some, you know, we would talk about it sometimes, and most of the time it was just really enjoyable for me to just be with her in that way. Um, and we had a special connection in that. Um, my mother is a physical therapist um she was a, she did o t and and physical and physical so occupational therapy and physical therapy um she's been in in that field for you know over over thirty years she's actually retiring this year um and through her i learned through i think through osmosis just a lot about um the the systems of the body the skeletal system the muscular system what's connected to what um and just when she was studying I remember she'd be up all night like typing like this is how old I am uh I can remember her like typing on a typewriter papers and um I would get up and be like what are you you know what are you studying or what are you doing and she would often like practice on me and my brother um different exercises and things um and she loved it she loved um and still loves like helping to support people get better and I think that through through her through her and my grandmother, I learned that that is is such an amazing gift and to the world is to help people get better and, and remember how to do that for themselves as well. So. In
0: 2019, Tama and Hanifa joined forces with their healing-centered minds and opened One Village Healing. Here is Tama talking more about a key tenant that guides
2: their practice. At one village, we believe that healing is a birthright it's health and healing is a birthright, and it shouldn't matter how much money you have like you should be able if something is is for healing, you should be able to access access it no matter how much money so we um, have it, it is it is our one of our um touchstones and priorities is that every workshop that we have, every class, even our individual services. We do have a a pay what you can or um most of our workshops and things are donation based. So and nobody is turned away. And that goes for our services as well. Um nobody is turned away for like lack of money.
0: At the end of my interview with Hanifa, I asked her what she would want someone to take away after taking a class or a session at One Village Healing. And this is what she said.
4: Her, her, Motto, if you want to call it that, is um, healing community for all. So, connection is such a big part of wellness, I believe, and resilience. And um, that is really what we're in, if you want to call it the business of, or our goal, our practice is really creating wellness and resilience, um, and doing that in a in a community uh, setting or or through that process creating communities, right? A healing community. And we have several different practitioners who are core and who offer regular classes, including Kweiji Wadai, who's our our on on location uh, meditation guru. He's an amazing meditation instructor, um, and also a fabulous muralist and artist. Um and Um, Shafau does our track yoga Thursdays and our Sunday community yoga class, uh, community and family yoga class. We also have another group called the Black Obsidian Men's Group, which is a transformational healing group for for people who identify as black men, Um, and that's run by um, Eric Ray. And we have hosted a number of different weekend workshops and one-time uh, classes and series by other um, local healers and practitioners that are really in line with healing justice. And so, for us, um, Tama and I—when I say us, who are the core practitioners and founders of, of One Village Healing—you know—we're offering. Reiki. We do uh, spiritual wellness consulting and support. Um, we have various small group classes that we also run. Um, and I also do um, some some singing and some, some other things, um, Mantis for the Revolution. And so we offer a lot of different things, you know, are coming out of One Village and are continue to, to grow, which is really exciting. And for us, our hope is that, one, it's accessible for people to to be able to just come for the first for uh, to begin with, to, to be able to get there, to to know that um, there's there, there are as little barriers as possible to be able to come and receive the healing and support that we're putting out um, and making space for. And as people leave, um, I would want them to have felt Totally seen and welcomed. I would want them to feel like they belong, um, that they have a a community of healing, and and that they're also walking away with practices that they can use and put into place on their own. Um, So whether that's something that they learned directly from a practitioner um, or something that they saw modeled, um, being able to do and continue practices right that's part of that discipline um so um to know that they come and have learned and then can go out and continue their own practices in their own homes and in their own communities um feels important to me
0: Thank you so much for listening to episode one of Welcome to the House. At the end of the storytelling portion of each episode, I will offer up ways for you, the listener, to stay engaged with the topic discussed, concepts that were brought up, or guests featured on the episode. For this week's episode, I recommend that you read Dr. Deidre Cooper Owen's book, Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology. I'll let Hanifa end with ways you can do some healing work with One Village Healing. We
4: have launched our virtual online offerings. Um, So all of our weekly classes that we have been normally doing for the past year will be up, um, be able to be experienced um, basically through Zoom. And so you can go to our website, onevillagehealing.org to check out the schedule um, and everything you have to RSVP for, so you can get the link um, to participate. And so these offerings are gonna be open to everybody Um, We are also going to uh, have our practitioners be offering some of their services um, virtually as well. So on the main website homepage, you'll be able to see the list of weekly classes and then the list of practitioners and what they're offering online.